This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Proper Wellness Center and Lost Coast Exotics. Now, this is going to come as, I think, no big surprise to you, Chuck, but yeah. in probably in the whole world, there's no place more closely associated with cannabis and cannabis culture than Humboldt County. And within Humboldt, Ground Zero has always been Southern Humboldt. And uh, so in this edition of the Humboldt Chronicles, we want to start a multi-part discussion of the impact of cannabis legalization, specifically on Southern Humboldt, culturally and economically and otherwise. Yeah, we've been wanting to do this discussion for a long time. I'm glad we're getting to it. Today, we're going to be speaking with somebody who I think, and I guess, Larry, you probably agree with this too, who is uniquely positioned to analyze Prop 64 impacts on SOHUM. It's Hezekiah Allen, who was born in Miranda, grew up between Honeydew and Petrolia. Now he's in Sacramento, where he's been active in cannabis policy advocacy and is currently the director of education at A Therapeutic Alternative, which is a licensed dispensary. Hezekiah's memories of Soham go back a long, long way and include ever-present cannabis cultivation, intense summer enforcement seasons, and a move to Eureka to attend high school at St. Bernard's. I moved up to Eureka uh, for high school. I went to St. Bernard's High School, uh, learned sort of the other side of Humboldt County. Uh, in those years there, you know, grew up very much in the, the cannabis community and St. Bernard's was anything but that, especially in the late 90s, you know, very much during the culture wars, cannabis being one manifestation of those culture wars, but timber, spotted owl, fisheries, so many issues um, that were pretty active fault lines in the community uh, were were definitely present in day-to-day life um, through high school. Was fortunate enough to to be able to attend university up in Portland, Um, definitely you know, helped support Humboldt's local economy in order to pay my tuition up there, um, you know, in the cannabis industry, have always been in and around the space. Um, of course, more recently, um, spent better half of the last decade organizing growers, particularly around best management practices and trying to create a regulatory framework that would provide for the public health and safety, particularly the environmental health of, of our great state. But also to provide for opportunities um, in, in the hopes of preserving some of the cultural and economic value that communities can derive from small farms. Um, pivoted away from that about a year and a half ago to, to move back into the cannabis industry. I've worked in various spots, um, you know, steps in the supply chain, a lot of fingers uh, on different pulses. Uh, Hezekiah, since you grew up in southern Humboldt but went to school in northern Humboldt and now you're in Sacramento, so you can look back with that kind of perspective, is that your sense that legalization, I'm talking about since Prop 64 now, has affected Northern Humboldt differently than it has affected Southern Humboldt or not? Um, You know, I do see a different pattern, um, particularly in the municipalities in the North, you know, Eureka and Arcata have local governments that deal with land use specifically in those cities. And while both the county and I think the cities have, have somewhat struggled to, to create opportunity for the expansive industry that existed prior to 64, I do think Eureka and Arcata have done a little bit better um, in terms of creating opportunity zones. You know, the MMIZ in Arcata is certainly one of the more 
innovative approaches to local land use we've seen. There's some amazing businesses prospering out there. I think we're seeing development in some of, you know, the areas of Eureka that when I grew up were were more run down. You know, we are seeing some businesses come in and invest in those. And and so I think, you know, it's not so much north contrasted to south here um, for me as it is county jurisdictions uh, contrasted to municipal jurisdictions. And I really just think that's a function of you know, having a, a government that's more focused on a smaller group of area, uh, a large, higher density of population, higher tax base, they were more capable to put together some thoughtful ideas. I also think the counties in the county's challenges in rural Humboldt were probably the most significant in the world of any jurisdiction looking at making the transition from this global prohibition of the last century into this new century, you know, this new future of regulation. Humboldt County had the highest density of production. It was an agricultural powerhouse, and it was all informal and disorganized. And so the scope of the challenges facing the county were significant. But, you know, I definitely do see different patterns in the impacts that legalization has had in in the various communities around the county. I went to visit a farm about a year, year and a half ago. And these were second and in some cases third generation farmers. And what struck me was that difficulties with the business kind of permeated their their lifestyle it wasn't just it wasn't just like your your restaurant had failed although that could be a you know that could be a tragic thing but this was a this was a way of life uh, that yeah. was that was threatened and i i feel like i don't i didn't grow up in soham but i feel like the the cannabis culture is more sort of thoroughly integrated uh, into the overall lifestyle in soham and if that's the case, I'm wondering if legalization has had a disruptive effect on on the culture as a whole in Southern Humboldt. Uh, yeah, I think that's a you know a really poignant observation, and and I, I definitely share it. Um, I think growing up in the the height of the the war on drugs, you know, the paramilitary type of enforcement that you know certainly still occurs today, but but was much more glamorized and celebrated looking back to the early 90s when there used to be media day you know akin to the show cops and um where you would see the growers getting handcuffed and having their lives ruined and just you know it was it was almost patriotic to be um i mean it very much was it was un-american to be anti-war and a lot of the anti-war folks you know a lot of my my generation's parents were were anti-war were were maybe evading the draft or were returning to the the hills and escaping from the rat race after they had been drafted and and so there there very much is a political culture that's embedded in the roots and the emergence of the cannabis community that I grew up in and it was really tempered into a culture of resistance you know at least for me throughout my childhood um you know I I was I, I don't know if I was taught it or if I just learned it um, by exposure, but I've always identified with and associated with the marginalized classes. You know, I've, I've been to Palestine, I've been to Islamic communities in China and in India, and it, it really was driven by the sense of being an outsider, by being unwelcome, by being persecuted, and, and that culture was really tempered through that experience. The pivot now to mainstream provides challenges on, on a couple fronts, I think. First, you know, we're, we're not resisting anymore. In fact, some people would even say that the last five years have been marked by a, a pretty grand celebration of this opportunity, this green rush, you know, huge investment, all this uh, sort of the opposite of, of like a hyper excitement in favor of. Um, 
And then, of course, for the folks who haven't been able to get in, you know, the, the resistance now is it's, it's a very different context and dynamic. Um, resisting a law that allows your neighbors to do something because they've checked the boxes versus a blanket prohibition. You know, there's a fragmentation within that community and within that culture. There's there's the haves and the have nots, the maids and the made it and, and the haven't made it. And so it's it's you know, there are different cultural dynamics at play. And obviously the focus on some Southern Humboldt is appreciated. Um, but there are other heritage communities throughout the state that are experiencing this same dynamic of how does a population that was unified and coalesced through resistance to what is now viewed by society as as a whole, at least electorally, as an unjust law. You know, those laws have been overturned. They have been rewritten. The resistance was correct, yet many of the resistors are still considered the enemies and are still outside of the system. There's a lot of, of cultural strain there, I think. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of challenges still to work through. Are mom and pop growers down there surviving? Are they able to, you use the word pivot, have they been able to pivot into the legalized space? Not in my experience. Um, you know, one of my big priorities as an advocate and one of the reasons that I moved down here to Sacramento was, was for those growers at that very small scale. You know, the families like the ones that I grew up in, um, where this is, you know, it's it's a small-scale business, owner-operated, homestead-style farm. Um, we established the cottage cultivation license, the smallest license allowable. Um, I only know about 30 farms statewide that are operating under that license type. I knew several thousand who were operating at that scale prior to Proposition 64, who I considered to be some of the best operators. They They grew the products that I enjoyed and loved the most. I knew they did it with ethics, with a stewardship ethic. I knew that they were caring for their community. You know, these are the businesses that I had hoped would succeed, prosper, and thrive under the Prop 64 framework. Unfortunately, in, in my experience, that's that's been, you know, quite the opposite. Let me just follow up on that then uh, and ask you, what could have been done differently or should have been done differently that would have given a better chance for these mom and pops to survive? Well, and... You know, let me just slightly, you know, take the liberty to correct the question just to add still can, um, you know, it still can be done differently. I'm, I'm the eternal optimist and I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that we, we still can. Um, I think that challenges related to water are something that could have been approached slightly differently. Uh, some pretty groundbreaking work took place on cannabis water. The establishment of the small irrigation use registration um, really does provide for um, some pretty pretty excellent opportunities at a certain scale. I do think that cottage growing um, should be included within a small, small domestic use registration. You know, at, at 2,500 square feet or less as an accessory to a homestead, I consider that type of cultivation to be an extension of, of the, you know, daily life. And, and it fits well within the small domestic use registration permits um, in terms of quantity of water needed. It's a very minor, small grow. And so I think uh, more streamlined pathways for water. Um, I think for a lot of these growers, roads, long roads that were originally built and intended to be seasonal timber access roads, now being used year-round and, and the sediment problems associated with this, those roads are very significant. I, I don't want to see 
a free pass. Our waterways need to be protected and we need to see those waterways free from that sediment. But we need to continue building on the great work that's been done to help shore up those roads and, and make those roads livable. Um, one thing I think Humboldt County did really well, and you know, I'm going to mention it on the what could have been done list because it could be expanded and more could be invested into, but the RR&R program for some of these, I think it's four R's actually, excuse me, but the, the R program um, that, that allowed for growers to, to relocate to more appropriate sites. The truth of the matter is that in that resistance era, being able to hide was of the highest priority. Unfortunately, being able to hide oftentimes also meant one was in a remote and or sensitive area. That's not an asset any longer. That's actually a liability to a business owner. So finding ways for people to relocate their businesses out of those sensitive sites. Um, you know, I've always dreamed of one of these big grows, you know, by Humboldt standards, let's call it four or five acres that could provide a house for 64 small cottage grows, all centralized in one place, centralized water storage, really look at it from a, a public-private, you know, sort of economic stimulus policy. And so more, um, more focus on relocating the growers that are willing to relocate um, could be helpful. Uh, Humboldt, as I said, has, I think, the most significant challenges of any jurisdiction globally trying to make this transition because there are so many growers that aren't in the right places and that do have real hydrological geophysical challenges to their site that are probably not reconcilable. They, they can't be mitigated. So some of the grows need to move. Um, water, roads, two of the obvious ones. I do think that Humboldt County could take a, an approach to establishing appellations that provided recognition to the smaller growers thinking of Italy's appellations for wine specifically. There are premium appellations, prime appellations that are only available to growers producing below a certain amount of tonnage. Um, so there are some market incentives, I think, to help shore up the Humboldt reputation and, and, and create space for those brands. Ultimately, in my opinion, the, the, the silver bullet, the, the, the lifeline for these small growers that, that still needs to be achieved um, is a fight that we lost the first time in 2016-2017, in which is direct market access. Producers of any other agricultural produce in California have the right to sell their produce directly to consumers. On, on farm, at farm stands, they have access to certified farmers markets. They're able to access and build relationships directly with consumers. And those market direct relationships and market direct access that is going to be the lifeline for mom-and-pop growers, in, in my opinion. After a short break, we'll pick up our conversation right there. More with Hezekiah Allen and the difficult fight that he hopes will lead to direct market access for cannabis cultivators. This is the Humboldt Chronicles. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. Continuing our conversation with Hezekiah Allen, Director of Education at a Therapeutic Alternative in Sacramento and a native of Southern Humboldt, who envisions a time when cannabis farmers can sell directly to end consumers, much like growers of any other agricultural product can at farmers markets. But bringing that about won't be easy. How optimistic are you that direct market access could be a reality? 
no one is working on it with the the focus that I would like to see. Um, it's certainly a difficult fight. It's the fight that burnt me out and 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 you know broke me after five years of pretty difficult fights. Um, that was the fight that that ultimately made me need to take a step back. Um, I also don't always take losing well, so losing that fight was especially difficult. And losing the fight on terms that I thought were dishonest. You know, I think it would be good for the market as a whole. I think it would be good for everybody if we got closer in contact with the people that grow our plants, not just cannabis. And so how optimistic am I on a decadal time frame? Pretty optimistic. You know, we've seen the growth of the organic sector. We've seen the emergence of this whole foods type of a movement. I do think that the, the market itself is gravitating toward products with backstories um, products with values, products with ethics and, and you know, with, with value beyond just the dollar value. Optimistic in the short term, not very. Um, I think that the next 18 months will rightly be focused on the drought emergency. I think we, we really have an all-hands-on-deck moment. Every irrigator, cannabis otherwise, really needs to rise to this challenge of drought that we're facing. It's so hard for me to say that knowing that these mom and pop farmers are on the ropes, but I say it, you know, knowing that we're the ones that resisted for decades, we, we've got to keep pushing the, you know, the, the vision is still there. Um, we also need to be better organized. You know, we need, we, we, we need to keep on joining the local groups and, and participating in the local groups and, and making sure those groups are nested into the larger state groups at the moment. You know, those interests aren't represented in, at, in the state as a priority issue. I, I haven't heard a discussion in the legislature of direct marketing since, you know, we put down, put down our, our bill a, a couple years ago. It, it really hasn't surfaced. I know it will come back. It's the natural progression. Well, I guess I, I can be pessimistic and say maybe it won't. We, we still face the looming specter of a pharmaceutical-oriented marketplace as well, um, you know, where small farms were explicitly disallowed, thinking more along the, the tobacco production model or the pharmaceutical production model, where the control point in the supply chain is the grower. Fewer growers, um, you can only grow at 10 places, and, and that's how the market is controlled and taxed. I'm still hopeful, though. I'm still positive. For better or worse, I'm going to hold on to, to the optimism. I'm wondering if you have any sense of what the uh, unregulated market looks like in terms of percentage of all cannabis activity and is there tension between regulated unregulated farmers sure i mean there's definitely tension um and i think that just you know my estimates and there are certainly estimates i i'm not going to stand by them as anything other than my most educated guess but i think that in when we passed prop 64 toward the end of 2016, you know, in 2015 and 2016, we did some pretty extensive research and modeling um, that, that sort of agreed with two other approaches to modeling. We all, we all roughly, uh, the three groups being the Growers Association that I directed, uh, Fish and Wildlife, and then the, the tax agency, um, Board of Equalization at the time, now Department of Tax and Fee Administration, we all sort of tried to answer these questions from three different approaches. And we all landed in roughly the same realm. Um, 2.5 million units being sold in state of a total of 15 million units being produced. And so, you know, you've got about that five to one ratio. I would, I would expect that we've probably increased in state sales 
uh, to about three million of those units, maybe three and a half million this year. We're certainly seeing growth of the regulated market, which is exciting. Um, but we're seeing faster growth in the unregulated. You know, we can see from satellite imaging, from remote sensing analysis, we can see that there are more unregulated agricultural activities taking place in remote areas than there were then. It's not safe to assume that every random greenhouse that pops up in the middle of the desert is full of cannabis. But, you know, for these purposes, I am making that assumption, um, which would probably put us closer to the 25 million total units. Um, with about three and a half at most, maybe four of them staying in the regulated market. Roughly the same ratio, but a bit of growth on, on both sides of the line is, is, you know, what my sense is of the markets at this point. And the Humboldt brand, it still has a value. What's, what's your sense about the uh, sustainability of that value going forward? Well, I think that you've used the exact right words, that, that, the future value, the value going forward of the Humboldt brand is its ability to demonstrate that it is sustainable, that it's, you know, preserving the heritage that we discussed earlier, that it finds a way to acknowledge and celebrate that culture of resistance, all of the sacrifices that parents, my parents made, that folks like them made to decide to live this lifestyle um, and push this issue there's a story there that's that's celebrated all over the world. You know, I mentioned a little bit earlier some of the places I've been fortunate enough to travel to. Everywhere I've gone, people know Humboldt County. And everywhere you go, people want to know what Humboldt County cannabis tastes like, what it feels like. They, You know, the amount of conversations I've had over a joint of swag in southern India or, or, you know, the border of Pakistan, the Middle East, all these places, you know, I've managed to find our people and they're good people. They care about their places. They care about the things we care about. And, and, and you know, as that smoke trickles into the air, we, we find time to connect and they just want to know what's it like in Humboldt? Who were you guys? What are your stories? You know, everybody, everybody knows. We, being the global production center for this type of a commodity, you know, we think about the 10,000 farmers that have been impacted by this, but there were literally tens of millions of people that got this herb that, that means so much to them and has impacted their world use so much, tens of millions of them that felt that connection to Humboldt. Maybe they weren't even smoking Humboldt cannabis. Maybe their dealer just told them they were to get a couple extra dollars. But even so, that experience was strengthening and building that connection. The value in the brand is, is honestly, it's really beyond quantification. It's such a global powerhouse of a brand. I think the two risks to the brand, the two biggest risks to that value, you know, I mentioned earlier, deviating from our, our heritage, deviating from our culture, deviating from, from trying to make cannabis be the best it can be, the most sustainable, but also the most valuable cash crop. But secondly, limited access to the larger market. Here in California, every other county just wants to argue with us about whether they're as good as us. And you know what? That argument's valid. Growers all over California grow great cannabis, but we don't have the brand recognition here in California. Here in California, we have friendly rivalries and competitions. It's further afield. It's Korea. It's Australia. It's, um, you know, these other places and these other countries where the brand recognition and value of Humboldt is so, so established. And we may not survive to enjoy that value. If we don't take steps now 
to keep the diversity of growers, to keep the diversity of stories, to, to just keep our diversity. If we don't celebrate the diversity of growers, we, we may not have the, the, the human resource, the human capital and expertise that we need to realize that, that value when the walls come down and we have access to those markets. Looking back at the, the history of cannabis cultivation in Southern Humboldt, much of which you, you experienced firsthand and lived through, is there a period of time that you think of as kind of the, the golden age, uh, both for the cultivators and for Southern Humboldt? And if so, why do you think of it that way? Oh, my goodness. You know, I feel like everyone's first three years were the golden years. There's just something about that, that frontier, you know, especially... <laughs> And I know people who describe the, the early or the late 60s, I guess, is the earliest stories I can think of. Those were most definitely the golden years. But no, 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 it was the early 70s. No, it was the late 70s. For me, I think I experienced um, the tail end of the many different golden years that there were. Uh, for me, that was 2006 to 2010. By 2006, um, Prop 215 and SB 420 had provided a moderate amount of certainty. You know, it wasn't wasn't the level of certainty you get from a license, but there were generally accepted standards and guidelines for what was and wasn't egregious. And, you know, I, I was still stressed every day, but it was a different sort of stress than I felt as a child at that, you know, the the Reagan Bush senior years of the war. It was it was a bit of a different dynamic. Um but by 2010, I, I feel like that era had really come to a close, and I'm hard-pressed to describe, you know, even that era, honestly. And the reason being is because I think that somewhere along the way, we, we, we grew out of balance with the natural resources and the stewardship ethic that was so much more present growing up and was instilled in me as a child. I didn't see that in my peers and I didn't see that in especially a lot of the newcomers, you know, and it wasn't even malice. It was just ignorance to the sensitivity and the sacred nature of the landscape within which, you know, we cultivated. And so to me, the sunset of those golden years really came with the, the undeniable impacts that we were having. And certainly our impacts are a drop in the bucket of, of decades worth of industrial timber impacts over grazing, exclusion of fire. You know, there's this whole suite of, of harmful decisions that, that our society has made regarding the land. So I'm not taking credit for all of it for us, but it was right around 2010 when for me, I realized that, that, that we had moved out of balance in a very real way. Um, and to further exacerbate this issue, people that I saw that were being conscientious, that were growing responsibly, or at least trying to, were still getting in trouble, were still facing court cases, and large, egregious environmental offenders on public lands or, you know, trespass, or even private land, but just large scale, they weren't getting prosecuted. They weren't getting in trouble. And so that was that was the sunset of the golden years for me personally, 2006 to, to 10. Honestly, 2001 to 2006 was a great era too. I was away in college and traveling, so I experienced it, you know, more from the market side. And that's where I really learned, started learning about the value of Humboldt's brands. But for me, those, you know, those few years on the ridge were, were definitely um, pretty, pretty exciting. 
A quick break here, then a peek into the future as we get Hezekiah's thoughts on what he sees as the most important lifeline for Soham. You're listening to the Humboldt Chronicles. This is the Humboldt Chronicles. Welcome back. We're talking with Hezekiah Allen, Director of Education at A Therapeutic Alternative, a licensed dispensary in Sacramento. If you're just joining us, our guest Hezekiah is a native of Soham and is involved with cannabis policy advocacy and keeps a close eye on the health of the Soham community in these post-legalization times. Hezekiah, uh, thinking about the, the Soham community itself, is it your sense that people are moving into Southern Humboldt? Are there Southern Humboldt folks who have decided to leave? What's the dynamic like along those lines right now? Gosh, I'd love to be home. <laughs> um, you know, for, for me personally, you know, just my personal life story is, is definitely one of, you know, it wasn't that I left because I didn't have a job. I left because I didn't feel like my job was secure or safe. You know, I thought being a grower might result in, in legal actions. And, and there was certainly the shame and stigma. And, and I know I'm not alone. You know, I, I grew up with a lot of folks that grew up and, and had to get finger quotes here, but had to get real jobs. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there's both. There, there is outflows and inflows. Um, there are certainly people coming to Humboldt to capitalize on that brand value that we've discussed. To, to weave their cannabis entrepreneurial aspirations into, you know, the narrative and, and the story that we've been discussing for the last few minutes. Um, and so I, I think there are both. I, I think overall, um, my sense from, it's, and, you know, I'll just say it's very hard to get a sense of, of what's going on in, in this region because it is so spread out and decentralized. And so, one neighborhood might feel one way when over the ridge feels totally different. And so the best methodology I have to try to keep my eyes on things regionally is, is remote sensing and GIS, you know, satellite imagery. From what it looks like to me, there is a lot more growing, but a lot less households, a lot less homesteads. It looks like um, there are less people. The people are more concentrated into communities and towns, but that there are more greenhouses. There's more areas, you know, more disturbed land. It doesn't look like the, the agriculture is, is being reduced. There's certainly more than is permitted, more than is licensed, um, without a doubt. So I know Humboldt County has been taking efforts to, to abate those unpermitted grows, but it, it does seem like they've got a pretty significant challenge on their hands. As cannabis becomes more and more just a, a commodity agricultural product, is there a future for small-scale growers in Soham? I, I definitely think that there is. Um, you know, I think that cannabis is one of those crops that will exist in sort of a dual state as both commodity and, and product. You know, one of the things that, that really marks a commodity is you can buy it sight unseen, it's graded, you know with certainty that you're getting something within the scope of what you can work with. Um, crops like coffee have a hard time that, you know, the, there is a much, the, the commodity markets for coffee or even for olives, um, aren't as active as for cereal grains, for example, that, you know, are much more stable and standardized fruits sometimes are, are dual track product commodity, uh, type of crops. There is no future for the growers that I hold close to my heart, the mom-and-pop heritage growers. There is no future for them in the commodity market. 
competing on cost, competing on quantity is, is a game that, that we will lose. Frankly, all of California is going to lose that game. There are much cheaper places to produce the cheapest cannabis and especially the cheapest cannabinoids. You know, THC is going to be pennies on the milligram soon. Um, it, it, it's not, that's not the future, but the, that direct market access highlighting the, the unique characteristics of the product. I pay a few dollars more for single source, uh, estate grown coffee from Guatemala, from communities that I know about. Humboldt has that global recognition. There are millions of people in the world who will pay that extra penny, that extra dollar for the products we're talking about. We just don't have the ability to get them those products yet. And so it's, it's that dance I sort of alluded to earlier of if we're able to survive until the market opportunity exists, I have no, no fear for our future. The problem of being forced, you know, limited to in-state sales and being forced to compete with these large-scale corporate grows that are geared up for global markets, but they're trapped in-state, too. We just have this pressure cooker of artificial market conditions resulting from this make-believe line in the sand called our border. And, and I get it. I'm, I'm 100% not advocating that anyone sell out of state. We have to play our role. We have to live within the scope of the regulated market to demonstrate our good faith. But it's an incredibly challenging situation to find ourselves in. And so, you know, more commoditized doesn't bother me. 85% of the market could be commoditized. And that 15% of the global market is still more than enough opportunity for us to thrive and prosper, for us to, to protect our culture and our way of life. I think it'll be more than that. I think that, you know, what we see in organic foods, whole foods right now is about 8 to 11% of the global market, you know, maybe a little bit lower. I'm always the optimist, but definitively more than 7% at this point of the produce market, uh, 6 to 7 falls in that category. And, and, you know, I think cannabis will be more. I think there's a propensity of the cannabis buyer to seek out these sorts of backstories. Um, we just have to figure out strategies to survive until then. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud you guys for, for maintaining this dialogue. If, if there's one thing Humboldt County's great at, it's talking to each other, that we can always do more, we can always do better. Um, and, and I applaud all the efforts to, to try to keep Humboldt alive until, until the real opportunity comes. You know, I think that the thought I'll leave you with is that legalization in California um, really, it's minor compared to the larger to the larger opportunity that's coming. And, and we weren't just resisting that, that culture that I was born into of resistance. We weren't just resisting California's prohibition. We were resisting the global demonization of cannabis. And, and we still are. And hopefully we can find some unity and rally behind that because I really do believe that direct market access and access to out-of-state markets completely reshapes and reframes our perspective on, on this emerging opportunity and emerging challenge. So just to be clear, you're saying that the, the linchpin for Southern Humboldt and maybe Humboldt in general is the direct farmer to consumer sale. That, that's yeah, fair to no say. In certain terms, I believe that direct consumer relationships and direct market access is a lifeline for 
a, a critical lifeline for many Humboldt County farmers and for the, the overall health of, of Humboldt County's cannabis economy. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks to our guest, Hezekiah Allen, and thanks to our sponsors, Proper Wellness Center, and Lost Coast Exotics. We'll be back with the next edition of the Humboldt Chronicles on the third Wednesday of July. We'll see you next time on July 21st at 6 p.m.